when you hear that someone who is turning 18 today or within the last few years has better than a 50% chance to live past the age of 100. Bratton and Scott, as economists, also say, uh, given the way the economy is working, baby boomers needed about 35 years to retire with 50% of their income in retirement. Gen Xers, myself, and the others now need about 45 years to achieve that same goal of 50% of income and retirement. Millennials and Gen Zers may be facing 60 years of work. So when you talk about something like the 60-year curriculum, this is where that term really began to originate. If we begin to think that someone's life isn't just going to be a 30-year career, but could be double that long, and that they could be living a very healthy life until they're 95, 96, 97, we're living in a very different kind of world going forward. This is not science fiction, it's today. When you look at a system that was designed to serve 5% of the population and now 32% are getting degrees, we may be closing on in on the maximization of the system that was designed to serve about 5% of our population today. I know what it means to be that adult learner who has a son who's born while you're working full-time and trying to go to school full-time. I know what that experience is like. And even though I had a lot of privilege along the way that I fully acknowledge that others don't have, just understanding the dedication you have to put yourself through to be able to go back to school and do this while you have so many other important things in your life, that drives my passion. When you're a learner at University of Washington's Continuum College, you're taking part in one of the most aggressively innovative programs dedicated to bringing education to the non-traditional student. Their mission tells the story. By backing a range of programs for all education levels and generations, Continuum College brings together the best of a UW education. From degree programs to certificate programs for working adults to UW Online to the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute and beyond, Curriculum College Vice Provost Rovi Brannan and his team are part of a dynamic shift in how we think about education well beyond the traditional student. This week, Rovi joins Howard Teibel to share the story of Continuum College and how their work is shaped by reevaluating how we learn all lifelong. Rovi, great to have you on the show. Great to be here this morning. So you and I met at the UPCEA, and I'm going to say what that is, University Professional and Continuing Education Association board retreat that I led in New Orleans back in December. And you're going to be inheriting the president position from Nelson Baker from Georgia Tech, who currently serves as the president of that association. At the University of Washington, you serve as the vice provost for Continuum College, overseeing UW's professional and continuing education programs. Tell us a little bit about Continuum College. University of Washington has about 48,000 traditional graduate and undergraduate students on campus. Continuum College is now serving about 55,000 learners, and we use that term intentionally versus students because they're in all kinds of programs uh, each year. And we have about 108 professional master's degree programs. Uh, Some of those are online. Some are face-to-face. We have a couple of online undergraduate degree programs. We have over 100 certificate programs. That really has become critical to many of the companies here who um, are in the tech industry or aerospace who have to retool their employees on a regular basis. So so that's a pretty big portfolio. Uh, In addition to those sort of mainline areas in our professional and continuing education arena, we run summer quarter 
for the University of Washington. We have early uh, camps for early uh, students at eight years old. We have on the other end of the of the life spectrum, we have an Osher Lifelong Learning Institute. And we like to say we have learners up to 98 or even older. So eight-year-olds to 98-year-olds in that 55,000 learner population. So Continuum College, we renamed about three years ago to really make sure we were capturing the fact that we serve a continuum of ages across the lifespan through a continuum of methodologies and delivery modes. There were three great pieces on this topic that I read in preparation for this. Chris Didi from Harvard's Graduate School of Education, his talking about developing new models. Your piece in Inside Higher Education, which was around forming this, uh, what I love the language of, the new traditional learner and thinking about life in a different way because of longevity, but also a different way of thinking about how we go from these three phases of life, right? And we'll talk about that. And then the New York Times picking this up and looking at how we serve future generations of learners over a six-decade window. There is clearly momentum in this conversation. What would you say is different today from three years ago in this move to explore this new traditional learner? Well, I think really if we can, and we can go back long, a little bit longer than three years, but I think we've seen an even greater acceleration in, in the last three years. Uh, one thing that's happening, first of all, is the economy here in the United States remains uh, incredibly strong, and we continue in one of the longest economic booms that uh, perhaps we've seen in the history of the country, but certainly in modern history. And for adult learners, Often going back to school can be countercyclical to a great economy. So when the economy has a downturn, we often see more adult learners returning to schools to get degree pro- to get degrees. Two thousand eight, right? People took that period of of this major downtime downtime in the recession and turned it into this is my time to retool my own skills. Yeah, and I think that's really positive. I think on the other side, we have to look at, you know, I think the questions about the student loan debt and so forth that we're in, we know that during those times, people were also living off of that debt load and not just paying for their college expenses. But if you fast forward and you say in the last three years, how has this really shifted? Um, it's not that people need less education now. In fact, the world is continuing to accelerate even since the Great Recession. We see new technologies, new complex, what I would call wicked problems in the world that require uh, extreme interdisciplinary thinking and lots of different kinds of skill sets. And what we start to see emerging uh, is but rather than degrees, we're seeing a really significant increase in people seeking professional education that is not corporate training. It is transferable. It gives you a credential that's portable, but it isn't a full degree credential. So, so what I mean by that is we're seeing a lot of growth in our, in our certificate programs and our non-credit professional retooling programs. And that makes a lot of sense when you think about it, because many, many of our students, some of them pay for this out of pocket, of course, but many of them have employers who will reimburse those expenses. And so when you're at nearly full employment and you have these uh, especially here in Seattle, lots of tech companies and, and high, uh, high tech companies in lots of different fields, they have to retool on a regular basis to stay current. So, so in the last three years, you've seen that shift. I was on a plane yesterday and I happened to sit next to this man who was on the way to India for his um, grandfather's 80th birthday with his family. And he runs a company in San Francisco. He's got 60 employees. We were talking about the need for this relearning. And, and what was fascinating was people in his organization come to him and say, I want to develop some skills. And he's like, go go do your learning. It, it didn't look like it even had a really clear structure, like a pathway for these employees. You're at the center of thinking about how can we, in the roles that we have and in the identities we have, 
create a pathway that allows people to, to, to see where they can enter it and have it be part of not just the, the corporations figuring out what their professional development are, but that, that we can be a guide in this process to them. Uh, yeah. And I think, you know, the reality is people need to learn more all the time in many different kinds of ways. And so uh, I always like to joke uh, the number of times that I have a problem with my computer and I then go on YouTube and a 12-year-old uh, walks me through how to fix my computer with a YouTube video. That's also uh, in, in all of its forms and in, in, in much more sophisticated ways than that people are using the internet and all the available informal tools that are out there. But I think institutions also have to understand that at times people do, do need different kinds of formal education across their lifespans, and people need to dip in and out of that formal education in addition to the constant learning they're doing on the job and through other mechanisms. And to date, we, you know, we do a, a good job of this at places like Continuum College, and some universities have robust programs in these areas, but often uh, they sit in a gray area in terms of formal education and formal instruction. And so meeting the needs of learners in this really rapidly changing environment, uh, in addition to over perhaps longer lifespans is going to require a different way of thinking about higher education. Let's get into something that you wrote in the Inside Higher Education piece. You outlined five strategic areas for development, credentialing, metacurriculum, learning services, new academic stack, and funding policies. Talk about how you came up with these five areas. Sure. Well, I mean, as many of us are, we're part of a, a number of groups uh, of like-minded individuals, we, we tend to flock together. And one of these groups uh, has been talking about these issues for a number of years. Uh, there are a couple of UPCEA has uh, the University Professional and Continuing Education Association that you mentioned at the top of the podcast. One of those places where these conversations have been going on, we we all see this environment that, that you just described and that we've been talking about, the shifting world. And so uh, the question is, for those of us, especially in continuing education units that often see the edge of this faster than maybe our, our institutions do, how do we begin to put a framework around this to say what's really happening and and look at the broader picture? And I credit my colleagues, the now retired Dean uh, Hunt Lambert at Harvard University, as well as Gary Matkin at UC Irvine, two great partners, thought partners in this. There are certainly many others who've been participating in, in thinking about this and working on it. So that article came a little bit out of some of those conversations. And so there are a couple of factors here that I think are really critical for people to think about. I, I've been recommending to everyone in higher education, and the book is a couple of years old now, but to buy The 100-Year Life, Living and Working in an Age of Longevity by Grattan and Scott. They are two London School of Economics professors, and they use a lot of data to show, um, and, and they say they're not experts in longevity, but they show the implications of what happens with longevity. And one of the interesting phrases, and I say this whenever I give a talk, and I always see anxiety on the faces of many parents in the room, especially when you hear that someone who is turning 18 today or within the last few years has better than a 50% chance to live past the age of 100. Bratton and Scott as economists also say, uh, given the way the economy is working, baby boomers needed about 35 years to retire with 50% of their income in retirement. Gen Xers, myself, many others now uh, need about 45 years to achieve that same goal of 50% of uh, income and retirement. Millennials and Gen Zers may be facing 60 years of work. And so when you talk about something like the 60-year curriculum, this is where that term really began to originate, right? A framework for how we begin to say, what is it that institutions are going to do, especially in, uh, parts of institutions like us that really do have a large workforce support role in what we're doing? 
if we begin to think that someone's life isn't just going to be a 30-year career, but could be double that long, and that they could be living a very healthy life until they're 95, 96, 97, we're living in a very different kind of world going forward. This is not science fiction. It's today. These are today's 18-year-olds. The, 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 the youth on our campuses are already living this. They may not see this quite yet, but it is starting to happen. You layer on top of that the speed of technological change. 10, 12 years ago, the iPhone did not exist, and it is almost impossible to imagine our world today without smartphones and, and digital technologies on, on the fly. It's hard for me, and I'm a futurist, to think 10 years into the future and really have any sense of trend line accuracy given how much has changed in the last 10 years. You then expand that to a 60-year working career, and you look at the depth of retooling. It's not just skills within a job. It's going to be having to retool for new and different kinds of jobs as the environment changes. And we could talk about, you know, everybody talks about AI and all the other things in the environment that are shifting jobs. The bigger picture, and I'll end with this, and this is what really set the framework for saying, what are what should institutions be thinking about is that, you know, in the United States, about 30 to 32 percent of people have a bachelor's degree today. And people are often surprised by that. If they are college educated, they, they think just about everybody that has a college education. But if you have a college education, you often end up in neighborhoods of people with similar credentials and working in places with, with people with similar, similar credentials. Globally, that number is only about 5%. And you think about the wicked problems and the wicked challenges of society, and it's going to be hard to fix some of these issues with 5% of the population having the, the education that they need. So so this larger frame, societal, um, the longevity trend, and the shifts in technology, and we began to say, how do institutions begin to prepare for educating people at different times throughout their lives? And that's where the concept of the 60-year curriculum came from. And then we began, we've been working to break that out into some functional, workable areas that we can actually move forward on. Yeah, this this first one is something that many people are from. This language has been out there. So much of this is about, you talk about new nomenclature, a way of having this be part of our culture and credentialing and badges. These are often on the periphery, but it's becoming more central to say we need to figure out how to bring that into our institutions. And, you know, you wrote in your piece here, we see the edge of change occurring first in the non-degree space. For example, the non-credit career offerings at UW grew by 11% in 2017, 18 to include more than 5,000 learners. We talked about momentum. There's momentum and then there's commitment. And how do you get your institution if you don't have a continuum college to shift into beginning to think about bringing commitment to this conversation as as a genuine area that we're going to invest in. The dilemma that most institu institutions have, they're fundamentally a machine. They're an enrollment machine around a traditional model, which is a, and it's got a certain budgetary component, and it lives in that annual cycle. In a sense, what we're talking about here is breaking that but breaking it while the existing model exists. And this, to me, is the fundamental challenge to have people take this seriously and, and to bring some urgency around this. That's a, there's a lot wrapped up in, uh, in that possibility. I think, um, you know, whenever you're making a change at any institution, as you know, it's very difficult work to begin to forge ahead and begin to change not just practices, uh, but also uh, cultures and attitudes toward the way that people think about this. You know, if I'm at an institution, I think you start with the values. What is it that we value at institution X and why is that important to us? Here at the University of Washington, you know, we are a, we are an elite 
research university, but we are an elite public research university. And so we take that mission very, very seriously. And thankfully uh, for our unit, over the decades, people have said that also includes different forms of dissemination other than our traditional classrooms. We're generating knowledge. We're disseminating it in traditional ways. Now, this is at a traditional research university, right? There are many universities that are primarily teaching institutions uh, that are out there in, in many different areas. And so they have a different value proposition. And many of them already might say, well, that's our, our we function uh, to provide access already. Um, that may be our primary, our primary role. But many of them are still modeled uh, from an accreditation and credentialing perspective uh, in the same way that, that the rest of the institutions are. Um, some of that I think is good. We need to have some ability to understand the translational components between degrees at different kinds of institutions. That's still a challenge for us. But at least we generally say, okay, a degree in this is a marker of some level of competence. Um, but I think as, as leaders, if you begin to look at your institution, um, I think you mentioned earlier the the demographic cliff that's coming. I think if you do your own sort of strategic analysis and say, for us, given the region that you might be in, given the, the types of students that you're known for serving, um, you know, start with your alumni networks. That's the first great place to say, hey, you know, you're out there in the workforce, but you came from here. What is it that you could continue to use as a continuing education learner in your job in X, Y, and Z. And, and that's a really strong place to start. You'll get some really good data from those alumni because they understand your culture and your values and where they came from. And they might also be able to tell you pretty directly, hey, this is what I was missing, or this is what I needed, even more importantly, four or five years or seven or 10 years later that I wish my institution could have offered. So I think starting there, that's a, that's a good place if you don't have a robust community. One of the things we do at Continuum College, and again, small communities or small college towns, this is a little bit different, but because we are in a large urban environment, every time we launch a degree to serve workforce needs, we create an advisory council or advisory board, even in the non-credit space. So we run over 80 advisory boards. And what this really does is it lets us bring in leaders from business from all around the community and get their input on what we should be building as well. So talk to alumni, begin to understand values, then begin to talk to the community. And especially if you're thinking about workforce, talk to the business leaders in the community. Where are the overall gaps? Uh, and even more importantly, if you've got a strong chamber of commerce, they often know what kind of inquiries for new types of businesses might be coming into the region so that you're helping to think about this spectrum of different offerings. Now, I will say to go back to Grattan and Scott for a minute, and you think about this 100-year this life and a 60-year curriculum, they're very careful to say, don't think about age equaling stage of life. And I'm careful to also say, let's not think about just workforce development uh, as the only lens that we would look at, because that may not align with your institutional values. But what are programs that perhaps someone later in life might say, oh my gosh, I'd like to go back now, and it's a different kind of program. It may not be a bachelor's degree or a master's degree, or even a certificate as we know it today. This is speculative work we're thinking about today. And I'll just give you my own personal example. I was an adult learner. I did not go to school right out of high school. So I know what it's like to go back to school later in life to have a child while you're doing your undergraduate. And I double majored in psychology and philosophy. So social sciences and uh, humanities fields. If we talk about adults today, we often talk about them only wanting really instrumental degrees and in workforce programs. I'm so thankful to have had that incredible experience. However, as someone who's now slightly older and a vice provost at, at, at a university, I almost wish that I had an opportunity to go back and do some of that philosophy learning again. And I said this to our dean of arts and sciences, and he said, 
to us really interesting. You know, I said, you know, I remember, you know, some of those things, but I'm old enough now to begin to contextualize what many of those philosophers were actually teaching us when we were younger. So I do think, I do think that there's a lot of workforce need, instrumental need that is not being met in this country today. We know that from uh, everyone from government sources to businesses to our own graduates that are moving out there. But as universities and colleges, we have a role that's much bigger than that workforce development. And I would encourage everyone to think about the 60-year curriculum comprehensively across all components of what we do and not just narrowly in the workforce. So, so those would be some starting points, alumni, uh, your workforce in the community, your, your business development folks, but then really looking at who you are as an institution and ways you might find uh, these niche areas to get started if you don't work in this, er- in this way or in this area today. How many people do the work of Continuum College, the actual mechanics of what you're describing? We have 220 staff total today, and then we have another 900 to 1,000 part-time instructors who teach in those certificate programs, and then several hundred ladder faculty who teach in the degree programs that we support. Those The faculty don't report to us, so there are other places, but 220 core staff, so it's not a small operation. I talk to people as president of UPCA, of course, we represent large and small units across the spectrum. So I am fully aware that just down the road, there's a university with a two-person continuing education team. They're trying to figure out how they uh, participate. That's precisely where I was going to go, because much of this, I think, as people are listening, are saying, you know, how do we create focus around this? In some sense, by creating this identity, Continuum College, and then putting continued commitment around it, has allowed you to grow this and, and build that kind of momentum. We can't underestimate to be able to produce this requires not just having bodies, but having a clear vision and then a commitment from the institution to say, we're going to move this thing forward. Otherwise, you're just you're just moving the deck chairs around. Right, right. And, and just to give you a sense, you know, to run 80 advisory boards, we have about 30 uh, staff that are functionally working as just program planners and executors. Right. And so, you know, each of them has a portfolio of 10 or 12 uh, different uh, programs, but a big part of their role is keeping the uh, boards engaged and active. And by the way, that has that has multiple purposes because it not only tells us sort of what should be in the curriculum to meet employer needs, we also balance that with a faculty input, but it also creates connectivity to find instructors to teach in these programs because we generally use practitioners to teach in these non-credit certificate programs. And uh, they also become a pipeline for hiring graduates from these certificates. So our certificates end up with these very high sort of trajectory rates um, 37% of people in our very first survey, 37% of the people who finished our programs uh, said they uh, got a raise or a new job at a higher salary after finishing a non-credit certificate program with us. And so that's that's a pretty good run rate. Uh, we want to, we didn't get a good, uh, we want to get a better response rate next time. When you start to look at uh, those kind of data, begin to get those kind of returns, and then you feed that back to your advisory boards, I think that's really critical. But it does, you're right, it takes resources to keep all of those folks on track. Advisory board members come and go. You've got to find new members, keep it vibrant. There's a final way that we're now using advisory boards, and that is because we've begun a a non-credit scholarship fund, uh, which is very unusual. We had to get special permission. Why are we, these are, aren't these intended to generate revenue? No, because so many of the people in our community who could really use these programs can't even afford a non-credit certificate. And what's happened is these advisory boards have all, have come in and said, maybe my company can fund uh, two or three people in this class to have uh, a free ride here. And so uh, it's it's curricular 
it's philanthropic, but you're right. It takes resources to operate at this kind of scale. But you can operate, even with a one or two person shop, picking a specific program and taking some of these same kinds of ideas and bringing them forward. Uh, and you, you start small and you, once you get one person with 10 or 12 of these running, uh, you know, you can start to add uh, some staff, but even three or four, you start to grow uh, from a small place and, and build it out. Let's talk a little bit about um, the first component of your of those five key areas of credentialing. I have a direct experience of this in that my son, uh, and I'm not going to say the institution, went through a credentialing boot camp program with a major institution that was anticipating making this an accredited program, and in the end, wasn't able to do this for whatever reason. But over the course of the three to four months, he developed a set of skills after having a traditional degree in history and political science, and now is working in the field of data analytics out of this bootcamp experience. We all see the value of this. And, you know, we also saw that most recently, many of these boot camps, they're not sufficiently bringing the students in. A number of them have closed, and there was pieces written about this, but tying these back to our institutions and creating these credentialing programs and boot camps is such an opportunity. What are some things you would say to people out there who would like to broaden their credentialing programs or have started this but don't know where to put focus or or what should be their next series of tasks? First of all, I always say make sure you build a budget. And I know uh, that's becoming more and more just how we operate as entire universities. Everybody has to be more financially savvy than they used to be. But it still amazes me. You know, people can have great ideas, but you know, for us, at least here at the University of Washington, this is, these are self-sustaining efforts. So that's also a critical change, difference in where we are. Perhaps you have a university with a lot of extra funding that you can begin offering low-cost free workforce programs, in which case, oh my goodness, you know, take that route and go there. But if these programs need to generate revenue, then, you know, begin to look at the budget models, look at the competition in the area and begin to say, who else is offering anything? Are we, you know, in many cases in smaller areas, the advantage is you may be the only one there that's offering those kinds of programs. So if you're in a smaller college town, uh, you know, here in Seattle, at one point we had six or eight different boot camp providers uh, in addition to us. Uh, that has, as you said, has begun to thin out a little bit. Ours still remain very strong. In part, that brand and the connectivity back to the university drives, I think, that brand loyalty. But if you're, you know, that's something to look at as well. That's a really good next step to say, what is our competition uh, in that space? Who might we work with? Uh, many of these boot camps are often developed by third parties, and, and we do this here at the University of Washington, and we have partnered with a third party to run these boot camps versus, even though I have a 30-person program development staff, they're running a portfolio of, you know, um, all in 450 different kinds of programs. So sometimes developing something new is tricky, and there are a growing number of partner entities some of which work a little bit like the online program management or OPMs do with a share of revenue, but some have increasingly turnkey solutions uh, that they can come in and say, either for a flat fee or for a share of the revenue, we'll come in and help you get started. When you, If you work with third parties, I say start with your exit strategy. Know what you're going to do to begin to extract yourself from that relationship before you sign the contract so that you have a strategy. Because um, companies get bought, as you said, some go out of business. Uh, and if they become a really critical revenue stream, so you've got to guard yourself. Uh, we're very careful. We have we keep multiple irons in the fire 
when we're doing third party types of efforts for that reason. So be cautious, but also this may be a really great way to go forward. And many private companies are also recognizing, wait a minute, there's a lot of uh, possibility in the continuing ed and, and lifelong learning space. So there are programs, there are companies offering um, entire boot camps, entire curricula, or even pieces of curricula and single courses that you can partner with today. Uh, so those are some really low cost ways to get started quickly. It seems to me that the recognition of credentialing as a valid alternative to either a four-year degree or the traditional way you go through an education experience becomes more possible and, and grows when more and more companies say those credentials are sufficient for us to bring in people. They, they don't need to have that four-year degree experience. And I would imagine there's a certain healthy tension in this because our institutions are built around these four-year experiences and then post-undergraduate, we don't want to find ourselves, in some ways, people seeing families, younger people, older people, that the traditional four-year experience is is not necessary anymore. So how are you noticing leaders are engaging in, in that tension? Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, just in the last few days, there's been some data that has come out. Forbes uh, reported on it in an article uh, yesterday. Um, that uh, I believe the number was 60% of Americans believe that an internship at Google is more valuable than a four-year degree from Harvard University. That's just scare the crap out of some schools. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, uh, you know, it does. But again, we're, we're, we're serving less than 40% today with bachelor's degrees. And so some of that really makes sense if you understand 70% of the people in this country do not have a four-year degree to start with. So for them, it may not even seem accessible. So there's many things that could probably be looked at within that data. But you're right. It's a perception issue. I think it's important that we, uh, as higher education leaders, we we really have to make sure people understand the value of of higher education today. The data is there to support it, right? I know all of the various societal uh, uh, issues that are fighting against us right now in some of these spaces, and some want to carry a different kind of narrative. But, you know, I think the number is something like 96% of billionaires have a, a bachelor's degree at least. And often we only hear the stories about the person who made it to being a billionaire after dropping out of college, right? So that sounds like the norm. And that would be a really big mistake if you're coaching your own child on what to do in life to say, oh, because this one person or two or three people as billionaires got those credentials, got that success without the credentials, but the other 90% gained tremendous benefits. So the, the odds are with you to get a college degree. They are not against you, right? And, and that's what I would say. And I think we have to be clear because there is a risk that if the perception doesn't match the reality, we start making bad decisions with uh, either political decisions, government decisions, or even institutional decisions uh, based on uh, what society might see as a true narrative, but that may not actually be uh, the case. I do think there are certainly lots of jobs that are trade skill jobs that don't need a traditional four-year education, and you can grow into a fantastic career in many of those spaces. But you talk to people, even in the trade skills, and even though they don't may not need to retool in the same kinds of programs an attorney or a doctor does, many of them have jobs that are shifting with technology and robotics every single day as well. And they go through lots of, if not uh, formal training, uh, on-the-job training to stay current. So even in trade skills, that's that's beginning to change. But uh, So I'm not implying that everyone necessarily needs the same kind of college credential going forward, but higher education, little h, little e, 
meaning all learning after high school, has to expand uh, dramatically, I think, to be able to serve uh, folks across their lifetime. And so we, we have to avoid dangerous thinking that might lead us down to make false assumptions. At the high level, I think it's a really important thing to to paint that alternative narrative or the narrative that really shows this particular model still affords people the opportunity to enter their adulthood in a way that gives them more opportunities. And we all see that. And if you have the privilege of going to a residential university because you have the means, it's it's an incredible thing. There's the what we're teaching, which is the second thing, which is right, is that you can go through this experience and yes, we got great evidence that the majority of people get value from this, but are we preparing learners to learn or are we just primarily giving them this industrial age model of knowledge acquisition that is not focused on the recognition that when they enter this six decades of learning, they need to recognize now that this is the beginning of a process and learning how to learn is different from learning about a subject matter. And most universities don't have that as a focus. Yeah, it's re- it, it, absolutely. I mean, it's really interesting. And and uh, I think we're starting to do a better job at understanding that here at UW. But I did have a student reporter, a journalism student, uh, who came in to interview me about Continuum College and asked what we do. Uh, she was a junior. And uh, it was a great conversation, very good, very professional, asking really good questions. And one of her questions was, why should a typical undergraduate care about something like Continuum College? That seems like it's only for older learners. And I said, I hope you understand that everybody is going to have to continuously retool and relearn throughout their lifetimes. And she said, well, why is that the case? And I used the example of the iPhone and a few other things just to show the change that's happened during her lifetime that has been pretty immense. And for a moment, the veil dropped between sort of administrator and reporter, and it was mentor and student because she just said, I'm already in debt. I can hardly get through my junior year. How do I conceive of thinking about continuing to learn for the rest of my life? And I said this to a friend of mine who was a professional reporter, and he said, if she's going into journalism, I certainly hope the school is teaching her that she will need to change the way she thinks about her career about every three to five years. So I I still am concerned we're not doing what you say and preparing students to understand that that's the world they're moving into. But I think when you ask millennials, uh, and in fact, this is part of some of that research that just came out, uh, many of them understand this is essential, and it's the number one or number two thing they are asking of employers before they accept the job. How are you going to develop me and what's training? And so that is ra- that is rising above even dollars uh, for some uh, millennials who get this. Uh, so I think they are inherently getting it, but I think it's time for us at institutions to also understand what some of our learners are beginning to understand and make sure. And in fact, I just talked to our career services folks who do a lot of freshman orientation. I said, are you conveying to the message? This is the start of your learning journey not the end in four years. And they said, oh my gosh, we really need to start doing that. We need to start including that this will be the beginning of your learning journey for a very long life of of learning uh, that goes with you through your career. And so, so we're starting to have early conversations about how we change the nature of that engagement over time here. But you're right. I think um, we, we're not yet setting that expectation, even with our traditional learners, to be ready for this future environment they're moving into. What do you see as in your world as some emerging challenges that as you look out in the next year that you see this is, we need to start tackling, we're ready to start tackling this. 
Well, I think, uh, and I've had, uh, and just in the last day, I've been on the phone or on, on Zoom, as we now say, uh, with folks from the Department of Education, and I've been there a couple of times this year. I would say, you know, in, in one of the five key areas that I talk about in, in the article that you have referenced is uh, digital credentialing being an essential component to make this work. And really, um, without going into a lot of geeky technology depth here, the ability to seamlessly move all kinds of credentials between employers and institutions, uh, for us to be able to ingest training records seamlessly from a business, for them to be able to see at a more micro level, not just, yes, you got a degree and it was in this subject, but perhaps what some of the learning analytics behind that, uh, what kind of programs were you in, what were the competences that you accomplished, and baking a lot of that into our credentialing system overall is starting to become uh, top of mind for uh, people at a federal level. Certainly, um, more and more businesses are developing their own internal credentialing systems. Several big retailers with several hundred thousand employees now have these badging systems internally, and they say, gosh, it's, they're open. We could connect to you if you had a digital credentialing system. That's going to be critical. This is the new academic stack section, right? Where you're talking about the traditional looking ways of looking at CRM and how we start to map the learner activities they're going through and tracking that and tying that to university activities. In a sense, we're creating the narrative for those students as they go through the experience, but then into the future. Yeah, we we separate digital credentialing and the and the overall stack of technologies too, even though they could be a subset. I think I think you're absolutely right. And yeah, I mean, if you think about the fact that we have technology stacks, and so we call it the new academic technology stack or the new academic stack of technologies. There, you know, you have a student information system, you have a learning management system, uh, you may have all kinds of card registration systems, different kinds of systems on campus. Most of them do not talk to each other very effectively, uh, and they do not create a uniform way of interacting with a student. And what we're saying is we need to have systems that allow us to build lifelong relationships with students, not systems that act like Groundhog Day. So take a degree from us now. You want to come back for a graduate degree? Great. Apply all over again as if we've never seen you before and we start learning all, uh, about you again. And, and the credentialing comes into that because having the digital systems to be able to move credentialing around uh, to different institutions, to employers, uh, even the learner themselves really owning those credentials, which is a different topic altogether, <laughs> part of that academic stack, because that's a new set of technologies we've never thought about. We've thought about managing silos of data, not managing relationships with our students through technology. And so when you think about what that really could do for us, uh, and we're very early at, in thinking about this, but there is real work going on here too. It may be a little behind where digital credentialing is, but uh, several of us have been working together to say, what would these systems look like? And, you know, it starts, you know, there's there's other, the services are tied into these systems. You have to have the right people to provide the services that these systems will use uh, from the university perspective. So new kinds of learner services is another one of those areas. But if you think, for example, about we have enrollment coaches now, not really advisors. This is a subset of advising. This is sort of pre-advising. And those advisors only do their job. They create a really personal connection with a student, even if when they call back, they get a different person because they're being tracked through a CRM, uh, customer relations management software. Uh, and so you can make it feel deeply personal, even though we're getting to scale at the same time. And that's really our goal. How do we achieve bigger scale and even better personalization simultaneously, not trade one off for the other? We're going to need a new academic stack. We're going to need uh, uh, new forms of services to meet that kind of demand. 
and I think we're also going to need uh, certainly digital credentialing at a minimum. But digital credentialing is out in the forefront right now. I think there's a lot of work going on in that space. And and you you know tying it back to how you started this section, when you talk to, to the Department of Education, having this data in a way that we can share back where we're going is going to create more credibility for what you're what you're trying to produce. So this data is key for those stakeholders or those potential future customers that we want to have as partners, that we have this data in one place or in a, a way that we can get access to it in a meaningful way. And you're, you're sort of begging the next question that everybody listening to this podcast is probably thinking, which is, what about FERPA? Right. Uh, what about regulation? What about policy? And that's one of the five areas is policy and funding has to be thought through because moving data like that, and the Department of Education is very aware of this, right? There are pretty strict limitations on what we can do with student data today. Uh, and so people are thinking about either workarounds or the department's even saying, you know, we recognize this is a very old um, set of standards. Uh, some things we still want to make sure apply and are protected. We want to make sure the core of what it stands for remains in terms of the privacy of the student's data. On the other hand, we have a world that's emerging where sharing data is becoming the way that the world operates, and, and, and especially sharing data in seamless and frictionless ways. And so I think there's a really big conversation uh, that's that's not the only policy issue, but you're touching on the fifth uh, component here, which is really that all of these have big policy implications. If we think about a 60-year curriculum, <coughs> perhaps a six-year graduation rate is a terrible metric. Maybe a 10-year graduation rate is the right metric for not the 30% we serve today, but the next 20 or 30% who need to live their lives in a different way. So there's measurements that we hold ourselves accountable to today. Uh, there's ways that we fund this, as I mentioned uh, the, the young lady who's the reporter, uh, just, I'm already in debt. We have 1.5 trillion in student debt in this country. How do we fund this over a lifetime? It's a new compact that we don't have yet between business, government, institutions, and a learner. It's going to be different than the compact we had in the 1950s, which was largely based around a very small demographic of people, uh, large numbers in terms of what was being served prior to the 1950s in the GI Bill, but still a very limited demographic. People don't realize, you know, we, we are in a really successful system of higher education. I like to say that because people think higher ed is broken. It's not broken. When you look at a system that was designed to serve 5% of the population and now 32% are getting degrees, we may be closing on in on the maximization of the system that was designed to serve about 5% of our population today. So it's really going to be incumbent on us to keep stretching and testing new boundaries across these areas. But we have to do that with a recognition that we have laws we have to follow. We have reporting regulations. We have to respect and, and adhere to laws around privacy for student data. The groups that we're working with are going a step beyond FERPA and saying, really, we need to put the student and the student's privacy at the center of the data stream and uh, and really say that that even as institutions, and maybe especially as institutions, we should lead the way in showing students what it means when organizations and corporations have ethical and consented use of their data. This ties into the digital credentialing conversation, the new academic stack. How do you think about this when you say, we just like credit card companies, we sort of assume once we have that student data, it's okay for us to keep using it in lots of different ways. We're positing, what if we have to check in with the student and say, hey, can we really use your data in these ways? And so that's going to be an interesting, that's another interesting policy conversation, not just for higher ed, obviously, this is going on in lots of different ways. Who owns your data is a big conversation, but it really is acutely felt when we start talking about these issues uh, and policy issues. So 
But I would start with FERPA because we know everybody's going to think about FERPA, uh, and it is a known issue. There are conversations going on about what what do policies need to look like that effectively protect student privacy, but acknowledge we're in a different era today. It's so much to consider, and it's so clear, Rovi, that you bring um, not just a, a knowledge set, but a passion for this work. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's my life's passion. Say more about that. What what about this, if you look underneath the surface a little bit, gets you excited? As I said earlier, I'm an adult learner, right? So when I uh, was in high school, uh, I had a high school counselor that sat across the desk from me and said, Roby, you're a junior. Your grades are not good. You're really not college material. Uh, and you should think about shop class or auto mechanics. And so um, I didn't take shop or auto mechanics because uh, not that mechanically inclined. But I did start my own business out of high school, and I played in a heavy metal rock band. Fortunately, my business was pretty successful. Uh, the band was a little less successful, but we did have a few years run there where we where we had a lot of fun and, and got on the radio. But I managed the band during that night and was uh, running this uh, business until I was about 24. Then you hit a recession, and you realize that it's not as fun to run your own business when a recession occurs. Uh, you have to think differently. And so it was a moment where I said, let's put this company on pause and uh, perhaps I should start to look at going back to school. But here's what happened. It was a trick. It was a non-credit program in audio engineering that got me to go back to school at the end of the day. A community college in Charlotte, Central Piedmont Community College, offered a, a, va a vaunted program in audio engineering, and all the bands knew about it because they had a great 16-track studio. This is obviously uh, many, many years ago. And uh, you would get free studio time for your $25 a credit hour or $10 a credit hour charge, uh, and you get 8 to 12 hours of studio time. What they didn't tell you is you had to get through two courses of engineering before you got your free studio time. Here's a guy who was told, you're not good in math, your grades aren't good, and now I've got to do math. And uh, the funny thing is when you have the right motivator, suddenly things become a lot easier. And I thought, this is all there is to math. And then I, uh, a year later, I enrolled in regular college courses, and uh, I was kind of off to the races through my PhD and what I call my ongoing lifelong learning with my connected network. So, But I know what it means to be that adult learner who has a son who's born while you're working full-time and trying to go to school full-time. I know what that experience is like. And even though I had a lot of privilege along the way that I fully acknowledge that others don't have, just understanding the dedication you have to put yourself through to be able to go back to school and do this while you have so many other important things in your life, that drives my passion. That's just who I am. Uh, you know, it's been a lot of twists and turns to sort of get where I am today along that journey. But as I look back, it really does make a lot of sense in terms of the progression. Thank you for doing this work because I think about friends and family who have young people. I think what you're doing is having a direct impact on what's going to be possible for them in the future. I can't tell you how much I appreciate that there are people out there like you that are so dedicated and you're in an environment where you have the support to do this and you have the support to actually go even faster. Let's keep this conversation going. We will um, we will post some of the things that you had described uh, that are worth people reading, both your articles, but also that other piece that you said was a, a little dated, but still very relevant around longevity. And let's do this again. Sure, I'd love to. So thank you for much, so much for being on the show and um, and we will definitely keep in touch. Well, thank you, Howard, for your support. It's always great to get the word out. Excellent. Excellent.